0: Meet Mary. She's 38 and has been dealing with vertigo, light sensitivity, and low energy. She also has a history of digestive issues where she would feel ill all of a sudden. And the only thing that would make it better is if she actually threw up. She saw a gastroenterologist wondering if maybe she could have some kind of a parasite, but those tests came back clear. And so she was just offered PPIs, which are acid blockers, and they didn't do anything for her. She saw a neurologist, but he could not find any reason for her dizziness. When I met Mary and took a detailed health history, I learned that she had a few other mysterious symptoms. She often felt like something was crawling under her skin. Now, she didn't mention having headaches, but when I probed her more, she told me that she would get headaches here and there. Looking at all of these symptoms, I knew they were all connected, and my sense was that it had to do with how her nervous system was responding to something. We definitely had to explore it further so we could solve this health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Mary and her symptoms of light sensitivity, vertigo, and digestive issues. Joining me on the show today is Dr. Ronnie Bannock. Dr. Ani is a board-certified and fellowship-trained neuro who has over 20 years of medical experience as a clinician, educator, and researcher. She's the founder of Envision Health NYC, a private practice based on the Upper East Side in New York City. Drawing on the various treatment modalities she's encountered throughout her career, Dr. Ronnie focuses her practice on providing integrative eye and brain health based on the concept of root cause resolution. Dr. Ronnie, I am so excited to have you. Welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Ina. I'm so excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Me too. So Dr. Rani, when we talk about migraines, most people think headaches, right? But it's a lot more complex than that, isn't it? Can you tell us more about this? It
1: is. So you're absolutely right. Most people think migraine, they think, you know, debilitating headache, but there are so many other symptoms that can be associated with migraine. And yes, migraine is a neurologic disease, but it has manifestations in so many other aspects of bodily function. So there are very specific criteria that the International Headache Society uh, have proposed in terms of making this diagnosis. So first of all, um, there have to be at least five attacks of, uh, of this syndrome of migraine, and the, head- the headaches can actually, may, it may be present or may not be present during the attack. But when it is present, um, it usually lasts anywhere from four to 72 hours. So it's usually a much longer duration than a typical headache that would be, like a tension headache, for example. And then there are some other interesting uh, types of symptoms that go along with migraine. So the headache tends to be unilateral, It has a pulsating kind of quality. So not just a pressure, but a pulsating quality. Usually the pain is severe um, in, in, in its intensity and it gets worse with physical activity. And then there are some really important other criteria that most people with migraine have. And these include nausea, vomiting, light sensitivity, and sound sensitivity. So those are the criteria. But in addition to that, there can be so many other symptoms, as I was saying. So dizziness, vertigo, GI issues. So some people get uh, cramps, they get bloating, uh, they can even have diarrhea, um, frequent urination, sweating. These are all uh, migraine related symptoms people can have, as well as the many visual symptoms that they can have that I I tend to see patients for. So it's a very complex phenomenon um, and many different manifestations and every person is different.
0: And it's so interesting because, you know, like we were saying, most people think migraine is a headache. I think it's so interesting to know that it's all of these other things. And in some situations, the headache may not even be present.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that that's the tricky thing. And it's tricky for the patients to understand that. But it's even trickier for their their providers to understand that. Because, you know, again, if the headache is not present, it, it can be, you know, it, uncertain as to what's going on. And sometimes patients end up getting huge workups for other conditions that may not be necessary.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what was happening with Mary. You know, she had a lot of those other symptoms. A headache is something that she didn't even really mention. Once I probed her and we talked about it, she said, oh yeah, I get that once in a while, but it wasn't one of her main symptoms. So she ended up going to so many different doctors and getting all of these workups without really any resolution. I see that so often. Yeah, so how common is migraine syndrome in the American population? It is an
1: epidemic. I mean, it is so common. So it's estimated that one in 10 people have migraine and about 11% of the world's population has migraine. So if you think of the U.S. alone, uh, with the population of the U.S. being about 330 million, so that's over 33 million people in the U.S. have some form of migraine. And um, uh, it tends to affect women more, much more often than men. So it's about a three to one ratio. And perhaps it has something to do with hormonal changes um, or perhaps other issues, but um, definitely more seen in, in females. And there's also a familial predisposition. So, you know, if if a family member has it, the chance of someone else having it is much higher. And also um, in terms of um, children, if a parent has migraine, the child's chance of getting migraine is 50 percent. So it's it's very, very prevalent. And also, you um, You know, many, it's interesting, many people uh, don't really know their family history. So, if you suspect that you may have migraine, uh, it may be helpful to ask some of your family members if they get headaches or some of these other symptoms that I've mentioned, because maybe they haven't even been formally diagnosed.
0: That's such a good point. Oh, a lot of times, you know, when people think of headaches, they can understand how headaches can be related to other neurological things, say maybe dizziness or light sensitivity. But what about the GI symptoms? Can you talk about the relationship between what happens in the nervous system and our GI system and how and why those are so linked?
1: So yes, the gut Brain axis is something that uh, most, even most doctors are not aware of, but it is so important in understanding migraine. So, um, so there is actually, uh, there are many connections between the brain and the gut. The primary connection is um, through a nerve called the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is very important because it's a, it carries parasympathetic information from the brain to the gut. And it helps control eye digestion, it helps control other um, GI functions. It's, it's also really interesting in the gut itself, there's actually nervous tissue in the gut. There's actually um, a nervous system in the gut called the enteric nervous system. And this nervous system in the gut releases lots of neurotransmitters uh, that actually go back to the brain and, and send signals back to the brain. So for example, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, uh, these are all neurotransmitters that are secreted by the gut that can have an impact on our brain function. And so there's really a kind of a, a dual pathway between the brain and the gut in terms of all these signals going back and forth. So again, it's not uncommon that patients with migraine have a lot of GI issues. Uh, Many children who have migraine, they never even get the headache. All they get are really just GI issues. And so it can be even more challenging to diagnose kids with migraine.
0: Yeah, this is so helpful, and I think it's so important for everyone listening to know about this connection, so that if they're experiencing some of these, you know, what we call mysterious symptoms, it could be this migraine syndrome and complex.
1: Yes, yeah,
0: Doctor Ani, what are some common triggers for this?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So there are, you know, a number of triggers people can have, and and the other thing to really keep in mind is that every person's triggers are different. So, um, so for many people, there may be food triggers. So food sensitivities, for example, foods that are fermented, uh, foods that are high in tyramines or histamines or sulfites. Uh, so for example, bread wine, chocolate fermented cheese, a lot of those foods that we all love may actually be triggers for many people. Um, And so I think, you know, that the the best piece of advice I give to patients is really keep a food diary and try to identify what is, what could possibly be your triggers, because your triggers may not be similar to even other family members, for example. Um, And then the other big trigger, um, this is kind of a double-edged sword, but the other big trigger that I've, I've found in patients is caffeine. Many uh, migraine medications, especially over-the-counter migraine medications like Excedrin migraine, have caffeine in them. So in some cases, caffeine can be used to treat migraine, but too much caffeine can actually be a migraine trigger. And it has to do with what caffeine does to blood vessels within the brain. Caffeine constricts blood vessels, and then that constriction can actually trigger a migraine. Uh, but it can also be used to treat migraine. So, it's again, it's a very fine line between Uh, treating the migraine and triggering the migraine. So I usually tell my patients if they have a lot of caffeine in their diet to try to cut back to the maximum of, let's say, an eight ounce caffeinated beverage per day, just to not to become too resistant to the effects of caffeine for migraine.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So it sounds like there's sort of that golden, you know, middle amount of milligrams that you need of caffeine where it helps and then going over that.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like the Goldilocks syndrome. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I'm assuming that's probably going to be somewhat different for each person, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. But, but many people don't realize they have, there's, there's caffeine in other foods as well. So not just coffee or tea, but um, so, uh, other many other beverages have caffeine. Even chocolate has a little bit of caffeine. So, you know, just kind of pay attention to what your triggers may be, and and um, in terms of tracking these. So, there are lots of headache trackers out there where you can track your your dietary intake, you can track your activities, you can track stress levels. Um, there's actually a great app I found uh, which you, which helps you track all of this, and it's called the Migraine Buddy. Um, it's a free app and um, you can just enter all your information. It'll help you identify what your triggers may be. Uh, And then for other people, um, triggers can be changes in their daily habits. So people with migraine, um, their brains love consistency. So it's really important to get regular sleep to eat regular meals on time, to stay very well hydrated. And when that schedule gets thrown off, their migraines can get triggered. So the migraine trackers or the headache, uh, sorry the migraine buddy can be very effective in helping you figure out what is optimal for you.
0: Right. That's great. That's really helpful. So then we have caffeine, we have histamines, uh, we have sulfites, uh, food sensitivities. Anything else?
1: Um, alcohol. <laughs> so, like. uh, so many people are sensitive to certain types of alcohol. For, for some people, it, for many people, it's red wine. For others, it's beer. So, so again, it all just depends on what your body, your gut is sensitive to, whether it's fermentation, whether it's tannins in the product. For example, a red wine uh, can contain a lot of tannins, um, as can other beverages. For example, apple juice can have tannins or uh, the skin of, of red apples and pears can have tannins as well. So lots of different triggers for different people.
0: So you and I both love to get to the root cause. So what are some tests that could be done to try to get to the bottom of it and see what's creating that? You know, what are things that may be causing these triggers and some of these other imbalances when people have migraine syndrome?
1: So I always start with the gut. That's my philosophy is, um, you know, look at what's going on in the gut, because once you heal the gut, in many times, uh, patients will have significant improvements in their migraine. So um, one area of study that's, that's becoming really um, interesting is the relationship between the microbiome, the gut microbiome and migraine. And so, um, you know, it's still in its very early stages where there's a lot we still don't understand, but it's thought that um, there could be certain bacteria that metabolize nitrates in a certain way that creates nitric acid, and then that may trigger migraine. So having a healthy gut microbiome, having diversity um, in your food intake, again, staying away from too many fermented foods, but trying to to populate your gut with healthy bacteria, perhaps taking a probiotic can be very, very helpful. So uh, gut dysbiosis is, is key. And treating that is is very helpful.
0: Um, Yeah, and you know, I just wanna jump in here real quick when you were talking about fermented foods because I think this could be a little bit confusing for people. Um, and you know, I see so many people that come and say, I eat fermented foods all the time because you know, so and so told me or I saw it on the news like I want to really have a good microbiome, but it's all about finding that balance, right? You know, because too many fermented foods are gonna be high in histamines and that could be such a big trigger for this. So it's about finding that balance.
1: Exactly. And sometimes it's trial and error. So you figure out what works for you. You know, if if you have something and you have it, you know, let's say you you, you have something regularly in your diet for two or three days and your headaches get worse, then your body's not responding to that well. And it's something that you should, you should keep, you know, eliminate from your diet. Um, And so what I tell patients is, you know, try only change only one thing at a time, because if you try to change too many things in your diet or your lifestyle at a time, you don't really know what's having the impact. And then in terms of root causes, there's a couple of other things that I like to look at. Oftentimes, um, nutritional deficiencies can also lead to migraine. So one thing that's been studied is magnesium. And many of us are low in magnesium. It's it's, it's common common in our populations because the way our our agricultural uh, processes are, uh, oftentimes magnesium is leached out of the foods that, that we eat. It's important to uh, have lots of magnesium rich foods in one's diet. Now, in terms of testing for magnesium, it's a little tricky to test for magnesium because the blood serum magnesium may not really reflect what's in your body, what's in your bodily stores, because a lot of it's stored in the bone um, or other tissues. So, RBC magnesium is a test that can be done, uh, which is basically the magnesium within red blood cells. So, if you're, you know, if you are predisposed to migraines and you really want to know, get to the root cause of what's going on, and you think it could be a magnesium issue, uh, perhaps ask to get an RBC magnesium. Other uh, issues with processing, not necessarily nutritional deficiency, but perhaps uh, metabolic um, deficiency in terms of processing certain vitamins. So uh, for example, the MTHFR mutation uh, is very common in the population. There are many variants, but I found that um, some of my many of my migraine patients actually have uh, variants in the MTHR. Uh, F gene. And uh, by supplementing or or supplementing with methylated B vitamins, that can be quite effective as well. Um, Toxins are also um, really important to think about when it comes to migraine, uh, specifically um, inhaled toxins. And so uh, in migraine, what happens is our senses become very, very kind of hyper-acute. So uh, people are, again, are set light-sensitive, set light sound-sensitive, smell-sensitive, taste-sensitive. So it's important to really think about what's in your environment. Now, this is something that, you know, it's not been studied, but I, I definitely ask my patients about it, is mold. Uh, had, had, could they have exposure to mold? Could they have mold toxicity? Uh, because if, if so, and if, if someone's having regular migraines or frequent migraines, it may be important to, to get that assessed and treated.
0: Yeah, mold's definitely such a biggie. Um, We actually did a whole episode on this with Evan Brand. We got into a lot of the nitty gritty because there is so much to it, but it could really, really make a big difference in your health for sure. And then once people find the root causes, and obviously, as you were saying, they're going to be different for every individual. You know, as they're looking for it, are there specific tests that you um, recommend, or are there things that they can ask their doctor to run to be able to get to the bottom of it? I know you mentioned the RBC magnesium, uh, but in terms of gut stuff or mold stuff, anything that you would recommend for that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I just want to emphasize it is really important to not to diagnose yourself with migraine, but to actually see a doctor and to get the proper diagnosis. Because occasionally um, on the exam, there may be something that your doctor picks up that may point to something else. And so that may mean that, oh, perhaps we should go down a a different avenue. Maybe we need to do an MRI. Maybe we need to do some other testing. So it is important to at least check up with your doctor first to make sure it's not something else. And and then if it is migraine, sometimes what I do is, um, in addition to the RBC Magnesium and then the MTHFR, um, I will also order a food sensitivity panel, not an IgE, but an IgG panel. And um, it's a little bit tricky for me because um, I, I practice in New York State and I'm very limited in what I can order. But uh, sometimes I do send my patients elsewhere to other states where they can get this testing done, because um, in terms of, you know, figuring out what your body is sensitive to, uh, that is in terms of foods, that is probably the most comprehensive way to do it. Um, Ina, I don't know whether you've had any experience um with your migraine clients and patients uh, with food sensitivities, but I find it very helpful.
0: Definitely. Me too. Yeah. And, you know, food sensitivity testing can be a little tricky because As you know, we can react on so many different pathways. You know, there's IgG and IgA, but some people react more to a compound in a food, like we were saying, the histamines or the sulfites or the salicylates. So it's a little tricky, but I think having someone that can kind of look at everything and really evaluate it is going to be key because, you know, when you're reacting to something in your food, whether it's the food itself or the compound on that food, it's certainly a big trigger. So I'm with you 100% on that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes
1: I order for my patients is stool analysis, stool testing. Um, and just, just to kind of get a sense of whether there is gut dysbiosis or not. And again, this is a very early area of um, investigation in, in scientific studies in terms of the relationship between the gut microbiome and migraine. But um, occasionally, and especially people with chronic migraine or migraine that's not... Um, responding to, to treatment, uh, it may be helpful as well.
0: Yeah, the microbiome just has so much to do with, you know, everything in health. So it would make sense that there's a correlation with migraine for sure. Now, what about some traditional approaches? You know, if someone is diagnosed with migraine And, you know, let's say that, you know, they may have gone to just a very conventional doctor. Are there specific medications that are used or are there any other approaches that someone would, you know, perhaps may have had conventionally?
1: The experience most patients get is when they go to a conventional doctor is to leave with a prescription in hand. And that is kind of a knee-jerk reaction uh, that, that most doctors will, will give the patient a prescription. And some of these medications are, and they've been around a long time, they're relatively safe, but they can have many side effects. Uh, many migraine treatments are, are in the class of either uh, blood pressure medications, some of them are anti-seizure medications, some of them are antidepressants. Uh, those are the typical classes used. Now there are some newer classes of treatments that are that are they've come on the market in the past couple of years. They um, they are in this class of CGRP inhibitors, and CGRP stands for calcitonin gene-related peptide, which is thought to be um, play a major role in migraine. These are really biologic agents. Currently, they're injectables. And there are some oral formulations that are coming on the market pretty soon, but most of them are injections given uh, once or twice a month. Um, And they have been shown to improve migraine uh, to a certain amount. But my approach really is to try to uh, steer clear of uh, medications that can cause other side effects and really to try to approach it more in a functional way um, to get to the root cause and deal with that rather than to just to try to mask the symptoms with a painkiller type of medication or, or some other medication. So. Yeah.
0: And with this, um, the biologic that you were just talking about, I have a very good friend that was on that and she actually had a lot of side effects. And once she got off, it takes, you know, three to five months, I think, for that to completely come out of your system. It does. You know, it did help the headaches, but it really created a lot of other issues and even potential autoimmunity for her.
1: Absolutely. Biologics, even though it's been tested and proven safe enough for FDA approval, you know, there can be other side effects. And then the cost is another issue. So some, um, in, in some cases, insurance companies are reluctant to pay for these medications. So some of it's coming out of pocket. So it can be quite costly, uh, my approach is, you know, if someone's getting migraines uh, once in a while, let's say a couple of times a month, um, my approach is to try to steer clear of a daily medication and try to approach it more through uh, diet and lifestyle. Um, if someone's having more frequent migraines, let's say five times a week, or perhaps even every day, then yes, I will absolutely prescribe something pharmacologic to try to get them through that period. But my goal is to eventually wean them off of that medication, that pharmacologic agent, and try to get them to um, to be a, be well, to be feeling better with more of a natural approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what are some of those natural approaches? I mean, I understand that a lot of It's going to depend on some of the sensitivities people will have or some imbalances, but what are some common things that tend to work?
1: So um, I would say number one, two, and three are diet, diet, diet. Uh, So I usually start my patients off with the traditional elimination diet, just to kind of take away a lot of those pro-inflammatory foods um, and and just then to slowly reintroduce them to see what may be triggering the issue. So almost to kind of wipe the slate clean and start fresh. The other thing I should mention is uh, most most patients with migraine probably should stay away from nightshades, at least in the beginning, just because uh, they do tend to release histamine. They, um, they can be pro-inflammatory, especially in patients who have an autoimmune predisposition. Um, then after the elimination diet... Um, if someone has figured out, oh, this is my trigger and this is my only trigger and, and I, you know I'm doing much better, then they can pretty much go back to their normal diet. But if not, I usually transition them to something that um, is known as the mitochondrial diet. And this is a diet that's been put out by uh, IFM or Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, it has 12 therapeutic foods that are great for brain health. Uh, I try to transition them to that particular diet for about three months and then to kind of slowly reintroduce foods and see how they respond. So that's my the mainstay, kind of like the cornerstone of my approach. But then um, I also use supplements, um, especially in the early stages, um, just to get patients, you know, if there is a nutritional deficiency we're dealing with or, or some other meta, um uh, electrolyte imbalance, for example, then um, then that will hopefully get them back on track. So uh, I use various kinds of magnesium. Uh, Oral is my preferred route, but if someone has really chronic intractable migraine, then IV magnesium can be very effective also.
0: And with magnesium, there's so many different types of magnesium. We have glycinate and citrate and oxide and threonate. What are some of your favorites for a migraine?
1: Great question. Yeah, I love this question. So so it's important to, to think of magnesium in kind of two buckets. There are the magnesium salts, and then there are the chelated magnesiums. So the salts, for example, are um, oxide, malate, citrate, sulfate, um, and chloride. And then the chelated forms are the glycinate, threonate, as well as glucuronate, and then uh, aspartate. Um, So I actually prefer the chelated forms because the chelated forms helps the magnesium get absorbed in, not only into the bloodstream, but also into the brain better because not the salts really don't get into the brain very well. They're great for certain GI issues, but not great for brain health. So I prefer either the threonate or um, glycinate uh, in terms of my two go magnesium. And because it is chelated, you can take a lower dose So uh, most of them come in either 125 or 250 milligram tablets or capsules. So you can start off with one a day and then slowly go up if if necessary as your body also tolerates it. The other thing I don't like about the salts is that many times patients will complain of um, loose stools, cramping, diarrhea. So uh, I prefer to stick with the the chelated forms. And then um, I was talking, uh, I was mentioning before about the B vitamins, the methylated forms there's a specific formulation made by pure encapsulations, which is a methylated B complex um, with PQQ. And so that actually uh, is pretty comprehensive in terms of what it contains. So I usually combine the magnesium with that e complex uh, as just as just to start with. What about CoQ ten? Do you do much with that? You know, so in terms of actual scientific data, um, there isn't any conclusive evidence that CoQ10 is very helpful. And I think, you know, if you really think about the structure of coenzyme Q10, so it's it's a natural antioxidant within our bodies. It's a very, very long molecule. I think it's about 20 or 22 carbons long. And so when it's taken orally, it may not necessarily be getting in to the bloodstream and being being absorbed by our bodies the way we would like it to. So, um, rather than taking CoQ10, I actually like um, there's uh, there are some other formulations that are on the market. So, there's idebenone, which is a synthetic form of coenzyme Q10. It's slightly shorter and thought to get into the uh, body, get into the bloodstream, and get into the brain uh, easier. But also, there's another formulation I've recently found, which I absolutely love, which is called MitoQ. And so it's a much shorter version of coenzyme Q10. I think it's only eight or 10 carbons long, and it actually gets absorbed into the cell membrane and uh, works in the cell membrane and perhaps it gets actually into the cell where it can work uh, as an antioxidant as well. So that's kind of in my more go-to uh, supplement rather than straight coenzyme Q10. Um, I don't know if you've if you had any any experience with it, but the brand is very reputable. And and um, I know that there are other uh, neurologists out there that also use CoQ10 for other neurologic issues, for example, multiple sclerosis and, and some other autoimmune conditions. So I think it's going to gain a lot of popularity and hopefully uh, be shown in studies going forward to really be of benefit.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and there's also ways that people can test. You know, if someone does an organic acid test, they could look at the HMG, and if that level is elevated, you know, that's an indication that levels of coq10 are lower in the body. So then, in those cases, it would probably be even more helpful versus people who may not be deficient. And then for them, that might not be one of the main nutrients that would help.
1: Very important point. Melatonin. Is a wonderful supplement for patients with migraine. Um, you know, many patients with migraine can have sleep disturbances as well, so it helps to stabilize that. But oftentimes, um, a dose of either two to four, anywhere from two to four milligrams a day of melatonin can really make a big difference in patients with
0: migraine. Mm, interesting. And how do you feel about melatonin in someone who's younger, say, you know, under forty-five or under fifty?
1: I would start off with a very low dose, um, and only right before bedtime. You know, every every again, everyone is different in terms of their responsiveness to certain supplements. Um, have you had experiences where patients don't do well in that age group?
0: melatonin? Uh, Well, it's not that they don't do well. I mean, I think if someone, you know, needs it and can't sleep, it works really, really well. I just think that sometimes people will say that if you give melatonin to someone who is younger, it may stop their own production of melatonin, and then they're going to become more dependent on it. Obviously, that's very controversial, and it's not something that's proven, but I know that that's one of the things that people talk about. But I'm assuming in this case, you know, if let's say you are dependent on something like melatonin, that's probably a better thing to be dependent on than a daily migraine medicine that can cause a lot more side effects is how I would look at it.
1: Yeah. Yeah that that's been my philosophy is um you know, just if you are going to take a supplement, try to keep it low. And the other thing I tend to do is I don't keep my patients on supplements um, indefinitely. So I usually tell them, okay, this is going to be a three-month course initially, and then we will try to wean you off and see how you do. So it's not something that I'm intending them to take for years or, you know, for a lifetime, for example.
0: Mm, yeah. I love that you're saying that because that's what I do as well. I and mean, I think certain things like maybe a probiotic or a multivitamin could be good, but for a lot of these other things, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah it's not something that people have to take forever the point is to fix the imbalance to replenish a deficiency or to you know detoxify something right or to switch some type of a metabolic pathway and then once that's done ideally you know if we live a healthy life and you know we lower our stress which we'll talk about in a second and you know eat foods that are good for us our body should in theory be able to maintain right
1: exactly our body has a tremendous capacity to heal Um, and it's, I think it's just a matter of getting it back on track.
0: That's the important
1: thing. So once you get it back on track, then, and then you maintain those healthy habits, hopefully it will, you know, stay in a steady state
0: and not cause issues. Yeah, for sure. And I think this, notion that the body has the ability to heal i think we all know that and we talk about that but i think we also often forget that and i think in the functional medicine space and for people that you know have gone through different integrative practitioners and you know have looked at a lot of that sometimes what happens is even in those situations, people can forget that the body can heal because then you know we get really excited that we have these supplements and we have all these things and it's great. and obviously, as a nutritionist, I love supplements. but at the end of the day, you know sometimes I think we can even use those as, you know, symptom relief or, you know, kind of get used to that where I think we always have to remember and go back to that point that the body can heal. We just have to give it the tools, you know, and some tools are short-term, some tools like stress management, you know, are going to be more long-term. So let's talk about that because I know that stress obviously plays a really big role with migraine syndrome. Absolutely. So I would
1: say stress is, is the elephant in the room when it comes to migraine. And most, uh, most practitioners don't even ask about stress, which is, you know, it's, it's the frustrating thing that I hear about from my patients is, you know, they, they come to me because they've seen, you know, maybe two or three or four other doctors and they're still not feeling better. And then, you know, the first thing I ask them about is what is going on in your life? You know, what are your stressors? How are you dealing with it? How are you managing? What is your support system? And by far um, patients will, you know, they will tell me their story and stress is is again the number 1 2 and 3 most important trigger that gets ignored in the management of migraine. You know I would just want to emphasize here that we all have stress in our lives, you know it's it's unavoidable, but it's really our response to stress that's important. How do we manage it? How do we deal with it? How do we overcome it or or um at least decrease its impact on our health and so um, what i typically recommend for my patients is find a way you know you may have different stressors in your life but find ways that you can mediate them you know find things that you enjoy doing that will calm your body calm your mind and help in in the process calm your migraines as well one of my favorite tools is different meditative techniques um, so it could be a guided meditation, it could be a self-meditation, whatever you prefer. It could be a class even, or it could be an activity that puts you in a meditative state, for example. So for example, I have some patients who love, uh, who are artists and they love to paint and painting is their stress relief. So doing something that you enjoy that will decrease your stress levels. Other activities as well. So exercise is really important for the management of migraine as well as stress relief. You know, some of my patients will tell me, well, I feel, you know, Dr. Bannock, I feel, you know, my migraine is so bad. I, I just can't even imagine exercising with this horrible pain in my head and with all these horrible symptoms. But I tell them that, you know, in order for their body to get back into um, a flow of healthy energy, they have to get their blood pumping and they have to get moving. And so that means different things for different people. So uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, go out there and go run a marathon or, you know, go do a triathlon, nothing extreme, but start small and incorporate some form of exercise into your daily routine, whether it's simply walking around the house or doing a, you know, short, a couple of laps in the pool or, you know, whatever works best for you. Maybe it is yoga or Tai Chi or some other kind of exercise, but get your body moving and it will definitely make a, have a big impact on your brain
0: health and improve your migraines. That's so important. And you mentioned meditation and different meditative techniques for stress, which I think are wonderful. I recommend a lot of those as well. Anything else um, that you like for stress management?
1: I love uh, essential oils, and um, so I use a lot of various uh, kind of uh, combinations of ex- essential oils for my migraine patients. Oh, tell me more. So this is also kind of a balance because some people are sensitive to certain smells. So we have to figure out which you know which essential oils may work best for you. But the the, the combination I found best is peppermint, lavender, and frankincense. And what you can do is create a a dilute blend. I actually did a recent video on this that I'm gonna post on, um, on my social media so you can see how to create a blend. You can put it in a rollerball bottle and then basically you apply just a little bit to your temples to your, um, to base of your neck and down your shoulders. And this is very effective to use at nighttime or even during the day. You can, um, you can even put it in a, a little tube that has like a cotton ball in it that you can, you can smell and use that scent as well. Or you can put it in a diffuser um, in your home or in your work, by your workstation and just have that aroma, that peppermint lavender and frankincense aroma, inhale it. And we don't understand yet how this impacts migraine, but I I have some patients who absolutely, swear by it you know they say i am addicted to my essential oils because they help me relax they help me de-stress and they just overall just you know put me in a more relaxed mood so i highly highly recommend essential oils Um, Not just for migraine patients, actually, for for many of us, uh, for stress relief.
0: Yeah, well, it can have so many positive effects. And, you know, typically they're really, really safe. So, you know, children can use it, adults can use it, almost everyone can use them.
1: Yeah, just make sure it's diluted because uh, some of these oils can be very, very caustic if you put it directly on your skin. So make sure you do a very, very dilute solution.
0: Yeah, that's great. What
1: are some other techniques, Ina, that you found that work in terms of stress relief? I would love to hear your experiences as well.
0: Yeah. So for me, I mean, I think a lot of the meditation is great. And I love what you were saying too, that it doesn't have to be where you're just sitting. It could be a walking meditation, you know, or gardening or doing something where it's like a repetitive task. Cleaning, I love cleaning. <laughs> That's a good meditative mm-hmm. thing for me. <laughs> um, and you know, there's a few techniques that I use. One is called T R E tremor release exercise. So it's a form of tremor tilt release energy from your physical body that may store, you know, stress and trauma and things like that. So I use that a lot. Um, I use a lot of mindfulness and visualization. I also tell people that, you know, if they have a thought, you know, a continuous thought that's stressful, you know, maybe you're thinking about everything they have to do, or maybe they're thinking about an event that, you know, made them very angry or very upset, I have them imagine what it is that they want so they can really work on creating their own reality. So every time they think that thought like, oh, that person got me so mad, you know, I'm like, okay, but I want you to envision, you know, what's going to happen later today, right? Or what you want for that day or envision yourself making up with this person. You're seeing what they're going to say, what you're going to say to them, you know, or what kind of the end result will be. So then you're always seeing what you want for your future rather than kind of going back and like relenting about the past you know what I mean
1: Mm -hmm. I love that that's that's beautiful
0: yeah it takes a little practice because you really kind of have to work with your mind and I think you have to start almost being an observer of your thoughts because so many times we have thoughts but they're so quick we don't even realize them and if you don't realize you're thinking these things that are negative, then they're going to be creating stressors, which are going to be releasing stress chemicals, which are going to be sending messages to your brain that you're in a dangerous place or that there's an emergency going on. And then obviously that's not going to lead to good health overall, you know?
1: Yeah. Similar to that. I also like um, the emotional freedom technique, which is tapping. Yeah. And so that also is very effective because you focus on a thought and then, you know, kind of uh, promoting uh, seeing yourself um, in a positive light with that thought and while tapping. So um, so I found that very effective as well.
0: Yeah, I've heard really good things about that. And I think now they have apps that um, can guide you through that to make it really easy. Yeah, there are some
1: great videos out there also on YouTube for EFT, so the tapping technique. Yeah, yeah, and I think the bottom line is with with migraine, um, you know, you really just have to to incorporate some form of self-care into your routine. And I know many of us lead busy lives. We have many different stressors. We have lots of, you know, the responsibilities and people who need us and ask lots from us. But, you know, really, it's important to take time to try to heal yourself. So whatever technique you choose, whether it's meditation or exercise or, you know, some of the techniques we talked about, uh, making that, t- taking the time to incorporate that into your life is so important. Just to, to, to do something positive for yourself and only yourself.
0: Yes. I can't agree more it's taking that time for yourself because you are very important. So absolutely. Dr. Ronnie, thank you so much for all of this information. This is all so interesting and I think it's going to help a lot of people, you know, especially if they have some of these other symptoms like Mary without even maybe having headaches and may not have realized that it could be part of migraine syndrome. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: I really enjoyed being on your show, Ina. Thank you so much.
0: As you just heard, migraine syndrome can come with many symptoms, and it's not characterized by only having headaches. In fact, in some cases, like in Mary's, headaches are not even the main symptom. I'll tell you more about what we did for Mary in just a second, but first, if you want to contact or find out more about my colleague, Dr. Ronnie Bonick, and her New York City practice in vision health... All of her contact information and resources that we discussed are in the show notes, healthmysteryself.com under episode 50, or you can access them by scrolling down in any of your podcast apps. As you can see, she is way more than just an eye doctor. And as for Mary, we started by running a food sensitivity test. And in her case, we used the Alcat test because it could test for as many as 200 foods. While there are certain general migraine triggers that Dr. Ronnie spoke about learning the specific triggers for each person is even more helpful. And Mary had a bunch of foods that came up as sensitivities. She was very diligent and took them all out of her diet. And what made this easier was that Alcat provides a very clear list of the foods that are an issue and the foods that are tested that are okay. So while she did have 30 foods that came up as issues, the other 170 were fine. And so she ate off of her green list using those other 170 foods. Additionally, we also cut out some of the very high histamine foods like kombucha and other fermented things, as well as spinach. We also ran a stool test and found that she had some bacterial and fungal overgrowth, which wasn't picked up on the doctor's original stool test when they tested her for parasites. And this is quite common, as some of the basic tests only look at some of the more pathogenic parasites, but not things like dysbiosis, which could be just as much of a problem, if not even more of a problem sometimes. So we rotated allicillin, oil of oregano, and tricycline, and tricycline is a synergistic antimicrobial herbal formula. And we did this for six weeks to eradicate the overgrowth. And we also use some digestive enzymes to help her break down her food better. While working on this, we also worked on calming down her nervous system. This is really huge. With a hair test, we saw she was pretty deficient in magnesium, so we added 450 milligrams of magnesium glycinate in the evening and worked on creating a more calm state during the day with a combination of breathing, tuning into her body energy, guided meditation and visualization audios. We also worked on her state where we looked at how she's creating her state in the way that she's holding her body, the thoughts that she's thinking, and some of the language she uses around it. What is she telling herself? What is she telling others about what's going on? And about six weeks, she noticed her energy improved. She was less sensitive to light and she did not have a single vomiting incident since she took the foods out from her Alcat test. Another month later, her dizziness stopped and she no longer noticed any headaches. Mary was thrilled and of course, so was I. If Mary sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to the show because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to your health issues, please don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified
1: physician or healthcare provider.